Welcome to Where's Home Really with me, Jimmy Famarewa, a podcast that really gets under the skin of some amazing guests and the experiences, places and people that have made them. It's a show about culture, about identity and heritage, and it's a space where these well-known names can really open up about who they are and where they find that elusive, ever-shifting sense of belonging. Every episode, I'm going to ask my guests to tell me how they define their unique idea of home. And I'm going to do this by asking them about four key elements. After we've finished, I'm pretty sure I'll know a lot more about them, and I think you will too. Those four elements are a person, a place, a phrase, and a plate. Now, for me, and this feels like an obvious one, but weirdly, I think I haven't mentioned it, it would be a place, and it would literally be my mum's house, which is handily the house that I grew up in. And I think as you get older, you realise how rare and unusual that is. I go there with my own family and my kids, and it's the same walls. My mum's in the kitchen. There's the waft of frying plantain more often than not. And it always kind of really feels like home and comfort to me. So that's my one, but enough about me. Let's hear from today's fantastic guest. I don't do panel shows because no disrespect to them whatsoever, but I think if I was on all of them and I have been offered all of them, yeah. and I, I just got offered I'm a Celebrity for the third time. Wow. Which I say no to all of them because... Tempted? What was the most tempted you've been? I just say don't tell me the money because then I would be tempted. Right, right, right. <laughs> but no, yeah. I'm not tempted at all because... I think what I'm trying to build is a sense of there is this stuff, there's this Doc Brown stuff, and I I hope you enjoy it. There's music and there's comedy. And then there is Ben doing what he wanted to do when when he was a little kid. Mm. You know, when I was going Mm. to the tricycle theatre in Kilburn High Road when I was six years old trying to act. The word polymath doesn't even do justice to today's guest. He's an actor, a rapper, an author of children's books and a TV presenter. But wait, there's even more than that. He's also had a successful career as a comedian. His big break, though, came after writing a skit with Ricky Gervais for Comic Relief, which progressed into a supporting role on tour with Gervais and a starring role in David Brent, Life on the Road. These days, he's an accomplished actor on the big and small screen, appearing in everything from BBC One Hits The Split and Doctor Who to ITV's Law & Order and Star Wars TV series Andor. Born in the UK to a Jamaican mother and an English father, he grew up in northwest London, a part of London he's recently returned to and is a very important part of his story. So much to get through the world's longest intro so let's crack on with it and welcome ben bailey smith aka doc brown welcome hey thank you damn that was (laughs) that was detailed it was really thorough So I was going to start with your name, Doc mm. Brown. I don't think I knew until recently that it was literally the Back to the Future thing. Yeah, I don't think it's stuck. any more complicated than that, you know, as a kid. So, you know, I'm in my 40s now. So it's been my name now for a long, long time. But most people will call me Doc. My mum calls me Doc. Wow. Do you know what I mean? Wow. So Doc and Ben is just like, people are like, oh, you're alter ego. I'm like, no, they're both me. What is true is... I think if you have a second name and you're an entertainer of of some sort, it does provide you at least with a small barrier of protection against vulnerability and and the insecurity, natural feelings of nerves that you get 
when you're trying to entertain people. And it was something my sister made me think about. She's spoken about it before. My sister Zadie Smith, the novelist, you know, she was born Sadie Smith. She changed her name to Zadie with a Z. And it's such a small thing, or it might seem a small thing to other people. But again, subconsciously, I think it's like that little barrier between all these people that are into what you do and think they know you and you and your actual friends and family. So I always start by almost flipping the title of the show back on the guest. So when I ask, where's home really? What is your first thought? Well, I like the fact that, I mean, I'm sure you know this, but it feels like a nod to a very flippant prejudice question that we used to get a lot, mm. you know. Where are you really from? Yes, of course. <laughs> Which is often said in a very friendly way, mm, mm. but it's so patronizing. Yeah, massively. You know, but where's home really from one immigrant to another is suddenly really interesting yeah. and, and evocative rather than just provocative. So, yeah, when I first saw that, even just as a title, I was interested. I was like, okay, what's the angle? Yeah. And who, who's the guy asking the question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me see the surname. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine. So let's start off on your phrase. Which one have you gone for? Language is so, it feels so vital to what you do and who you are. I read a publication called The Week. One thing that I really, really love about it, which is not related to news at all, is there's a little column that just has quotes from all sorts of people. And there's so many phrases that I've picked up on from there that I just love. The one that stuck with me forever that I never forget verbatim was a Bill Murray quote in an interview with him where he said, common sense is like deodorant. It's always the people that need it the most that never have it. <laughs> I, I loved it because it initially it, it made me laugh, but then I started thinking about humanity and, and the depth of that statement because, you know, I think it was Bukowski who said how much time we waste on petty grievances as human beings. We get hit up about the silliest things and we're constantly distracted by our own self-consciousness or the consciousness of what other people appear to be doing and how that affects us negatively is an incredibly negative mind state amongst humanity. And that's probably because deep down we know that life is a gift and a curse. We're terrified of death, but we don't, no one wants to admit that. So we're constantly running around like blue ass flies, like trying to <laughs> prove that our life has some meaning and this means everything. This is so important. That's so important. And we end up fighting with each other and maybe even going into war with each other or maybe even killing each other. Mm. And to bring it back to what seems a flippant, funny quote from Bill Murray, common sense is like wildly underrated. Like if you just think, you know what? I don't need to do anything today other than live and let live. Yeah. You know, I would call that common sense. If every single human being did that, <laughs> I don't know, maybe we'd be all right instead of standing on what seems to be an existential and perhaps physical precipice. I think that is a beautiful quote and I love it in reference to you and your work and hopefully more of what we'll talk about because it's funny and profound. Absolutely. And I think couching things in humour and being comic and having profundity at the same time oh, man. makes it so memorable. Is that lesson 
that learning, does that feel quite redolent of your home and your upbringing? Was that something that was kind of practiced and is that part of why you're drawn to it? Or is it a reminder of a kind of a home and an identity Mm. that you've built for yourself in adulthood? I think it's both of those things. Because when I was little, I don't think I would have been like, equality is everything because look at my family there's white people there's black people there's irish people there's english people there's working class people you know, what i represent is equality i never would have thought any of that stuff but there is a very physical experience that is is kind of profound for 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 mixed people because one of the first things we clock is that you know we look down at our hands and we don't look like our moms and we don't look like our dads we look like something different so there's an immediate feeling of, oh my God, I don't fit in. I'm like, I'm an outcast. And you, you, know, you speak to a lot of young mixed people and they spend a long time searching for identity. It's only as I got older that I started thinking about what mixed people represent. And for me, they represent something that's at the heart of everything I believe in, which is equality and the idea that, you know, if humans mix with each other, regardless of their backgrounds, the world does not end. Mm. In fact, you might create Zadie Smith, that might happen. Mm. Do you know what I mean? In the 80s, mixed families like ours, we, we were so hated in the midst of a lot of like racial tension. Did you feel London. that? Were you aware yeah, of man. that? Both sides were like, that's the absolute worst. At, le- the, at least be black. Do you know what I mean? At least pick a side. I'm from Kilburn and then the nature of that area, you know, the way that the Irish were treated before black people and 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 a lot of south asians arrived as well they were being treated like like black people and south asians before where i'm from irish and the caribbeans were sort of natural bedfellows mm. and um the unions that were created quite literally and then the mixed generation that came out of it were intrinsically forward thinking mm. mm. so i'm not saying we're better than anyone else or anything like that i'm just saying what a great place to start where the conversations between disparate cultures are happening in the house. So I just think it's a good step in the right direction for what my dream is, which is understanding between cultures on, on a deeper level. For you with black identity in particular in relation to music and forging, mm. you know, a life as like an MC and mm. first rapping and things like that. What was your journey with that aspect of it? You're you're kind of talking beautifully and eloquently about that amazing education that you had in equality and mm. diversity in different communities. Did you always feel that? Did the young Ben kind of did he know this, or was there a kind of was was it a little bit kind of mm. conflicted? Or, yeah, it was conflicted. Or, I say mm. a lot of mixed people will tell you maybe not now but back then being a teenager in the in the sort of mid to late 90s and wanting to be immersed in two cultures i was obsessed with rap music and i was obsessed with indie music but i felt like a tourist in both and that's because back in those days rap was almost exclusively black like i'm not saying the listeners to it but the people who did it. I'm not saying no one else was welcome. Of course they were. And there were right white rappers. There was, you know, a lot of white graffiti artists and white breakdancers. I just mean where I was in London, it was a black male culture, nothing like what it is today. And similarly with indie, it was a white male culture. And I say male, it's important because if there was more women there, it would be more inclusive. 
because that's just what women bring to the table because mm, mm. they're just more they're just emotionally more mature so anything that's singular like that is a difficult thing to break in if you don't look like the sort of monoculture of whatever it is and i'm saying this like understanding that a lot of it w- would have been a chip on my own shoulder or stuff that i saw that other people didn't mm. but then there's also a feeling that you get that you can't deny when you step into a room or a world where you're the only one who looks like how you look you just you can't deny it i guess to jump ahead there's an interesting aspect of having like ghost written for like different artists mm. and, and things like that and the subject of of ghost writing is inherently fascinating isn't it because yeah. you can you're you can be another person oh, being a conduit that. for your voice is I that something it. that you kind of that you and obviously i mean the just eat and yeah, snoop yeah, dogg's verse you yeah, got to write just dropped as well <laughs> christina aguilera i mean to write for snoop dogg and then the the second one i wrote was for katie perry i mean i don't think you can go wow much blacker and much whiter <laughs> like you know what i mean unless i was writing for brooke shields you know for me it's like who better like i'm the perfect person Black culture, white culture, that's just such a huge umbrella. I don't think you can even say those phrases anymore. It's so nuanced now. Mm. The black British experience, the black American experience, the white American experience, the white British experience. I think that's a great thing. But if I know the specifics of a character from one of these worlds, I can write for him. I I feel confident. Like with the Snoop one, it was like, there was competition pitching to Snoop and Just just Eat. Of course, a lot of people wanted that gig. But I was just like, I don't think there's a writer out there who's been listening to Snoop as long as I have. The guide track, if I could pull that out, it's a pretty tidy impression of of, of Snoop. The flow, everything. I was just like, this is just the perfect job for me. It was much harder writing for Christina and and, uh, Katy Perry, because it's like, okay, I actually need to study them a bit more. We're talking about a lot of people, but we're also talking about places. You mm. mentioned Kilburn, mm. its importance. You've kind of, you know, like the prodigal, you've returned. Yeah. <laughs> There's a number of places that I feel like you could go for that really crystallize home for you. Which one are you going to go for? It's really tough. I th- this is the hardest one for me. It's hard to look beyond Kilburn. I think the nostalgia is a big one. I, you know, yeah. I was in the Audi on Kilburn Road the other day and a guy comes up. And then he's like, wait a minute, you're that dude? Like, like, yeah. And then we had a little conversation. He was cool. But he said the thing that most people say to me in Kilburn, what are you doing here? Like, why are you here? Why are you on Kilburn High Road? Like, I said, bro, I fucking live here. What? Like the idea that like any form of success means that you definitely leave home. That is this other thing in people's heads. Like, that's the next stage. Why would you leave home? Mm. Whereas to me, it's like, no, just get like a slightly nicer place. Like in the place that you love. Yeah, you're right. This idea that you abandon it all. It's like, oh no, like, has that been clarified by periods away? Yeah, absolutely. I lived in Hackney Hackney for, you know, nearly two decades. And so Dalston is incredibly close to my heart. But when it got to sort of 2019 and I was like, I don't recognise this place anymore. It was weird. Like going back to Wilson, Kilburn, Halsden, it, it really has not changed that much. It's mad. What about other places that, you know, are particularly powerful for, say, your mum mm. or, you know, redolent of, like, your 
dad's yeah. heritage yeah, yeah. and things yeah. like I mean, that. And I'm always fascinated is, in that. Yeah. Southeast London is huge because that is my mum and my dad's area. It's like it's the reason I'm a Palace fan. Mm. And my dad's from Croydon. Um, I'm a Charlton fan, so right, we'll just yeah. breeze past that. So my, imagine if you were like interview over. My granddad on the, on my white side played for Charlton in the twenties. Only one season, but it was pretty cool. And my mum, when she moved from Saint Elizabeth, Southwest Jamaica, in the uh, very early seventies, she moved to Newcross. And weirdly, despite my parents both being South Londoners, they met in West Hampstead and then settled there, which is why. Wow. I was born where I was born. But in my heart, uh, I'm a South Londoner. You know, tracing my dad's family back, you can get to Ireland. Before that, you can get to Suffolk. Jamaica's the big sort of outlier here. It's this, that's the one part of my life that isn't UK-based. And New York to an extent, because Zadie lived there for so long. Mm. We, we had other family there as well, Jamaican family and my, on my wife's side as well. So had some family in, in Brooklyn. That's fascinating, the Irish side. Was your dad half Irish, maybe? Just or? Irish blood. Just Irish blood, yeah, 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 wow. But then my stepdad was Irish mm. from Dublin. My wife is Irish. My, mm. my, my sister's husband is Irish. Yeah. I grew up feeling very much half Irish. But what I can sort of get to grips with is the battle for independence and then this new determination to be heard, to be seen. That Jamaican confidence born out of horrors is, I think, kind of why there's little Jamaican cultural aspects that have travelled so successfully around the world. Bizarrely, Ireland has a lot of similarities. This tiny little place... And you go to like New York and the whole city's turned green on, on St. Patrick's Day. You know, there's not a president in America, apart from maybe Trump, who hasn't tried to court Ireland. Mm, mm, Do you know what I mean? Yeah, At some stage. Yeah. There's a forceful will to being Jamaican that I, I don't think I can separate from my character and the determination that I've felt, mm, you know, mm. in a similar way. My awkward side, my insecurities introspectiveness difficulty in socializing or saying how i feel i <laughs> link it really closely to some of the lack of communication in my white british family welcome back today's guest is the brilliant and very busy ben bailey smith who is the person you're going to go for? Like, did you find this one tough or was it an obvious one? This one, I was I was thinking about people in my life and then I was thinking about people who inspired me. And in the end, I went on probably my, my biggest inspiration of all time, which is, who's he's actually a West African, originally from Nigeria, Alauda Equiano, and sometimes known as Gustavus Vassa. He's basically my black British hero. I didn't know about him until I read the interesting story of Alauda Equiano, which is his autobiography, which mm. is possibly the only, definitely one of the only first-hand accounts of the early slave trade. Absolutely pivotal. It's yeah. an unbelievable read, right? And it's unbelievably upsetting. I cried various times reading that book. I, mm. I recorded the audio book for it with David Olasoga, and I had to stop at various points mm and take a moment. I've never had that with anything else. Sometimes you forget that it's fact, not fiction, mm. because it is a swashbuckling adventure mm. 
boyzone stuff like you wouldn't believe. It's yeah, unbelievably yeah. exciting. Just, I'm just thinking so, for those that maybe yeah, aren't initiated. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to give you Equiano. it. So basically, Equiano was kidnapped from a village in what is now Nigeria with his sister, enslaved at a very young age. He was put on a ship. He, never, he only saw his sister once again in his life, chance meeting. He was like a captain's hand and basically was like bought and sold a couple times, traveled around the world, went to America, the Caribbean, nearly died a hundred times. All the while he was learning nautical skills and he became invaluable with the experience that he had and found that if you sidle up to the right captains, there's a way to buy your freedom. So wow. that was his focus, buying his freedom. He was beaten, he was abused, he was robbed, got in fights, he, he nearly drowned a number of times. You know, he saw unspeakable horrors suffered by slaves in um, in the Caribbean and in America, particularly in, in Georgia. And then eventually settled after buying his freedom right here in London. The memoirs that he wrote became pivotal in starting the abolition conversation and were used right up to the point of abolition. He also married a white Londoner, settled down. He's buried in Stoke Newton, right near where I, I used to live. And somewhere there's a bunch of mixed race kids running around that are his direct descendants who, knowing what I know about him, would have added to the progressive nature of the city that I'm from and the country mm. that I live in. Mm. The ripples of what he did, we feel today. I've never read anything like it. I've never been inspired by anything as much as his story. Mm. And there's very few days that go by when I don't think about it mm. because there's always something relevant either in your life or in the news that smacks of inequality. You know, he experienced it in its most aggressive form. Mm. Is it that reminder really and that story how kind of inspiring it is, not just the fortitude, but like what he stood for. Is that what it is about Equiano that gives you this feeling of who you are and to remember kind yeah, of home and I think where you come from? Absolutely, and it's that. And it's also, it's a reminder to be grateful every day. I want to talk about food and get onto mm. your plate. Well, that's a much lighter. Yeah, but am, am I right? <laughs> no, but look, it's important to say it. You know, it's, it's very difficult to pick. A yeah, dish. what you're going to go for is your plate then. For a while there, it was hard to look past Turkish food because the 20 years I spent in Dalston, I was right at the end of Green Lanes. You I know, love that. And Green though, Lanes that. is like, there's so many Turkish spots that the competition means that the food is out of this world. That said, it's impossible to go beyond a, a Jamaican dish because nothing hits me in the feels like Jamaican food. It's just, mm. it's just fact. Mm. And it's it's a, an ongoing irony that we don't have a business like the Turks, like, like the Indians. Even West Africans are doing better than mm. us. It's outrageous. That makes me... That, that that boils my blood to see them lot out doing us. Just lapping, but, lapping, you know, lapping Jamaicans from yeah. behind. So for me, it's a toss up between ackee and saltfish, which is the greatest breakfast curry of all time, and curry mutton, you mm. know, curry goat. You know, you say goat to people and they're like, what? And it's linked to slavery, of course, mm. because some of the chunks you pull out of curry mutton, you're like, bro, what is that? Seriously, is that like a kneecap? What is that? 
And it probably is because that's the essence of it. All the shit the slave masters wouldn't dream of eating. It's like giving the animals the scraps. On a plantation, why on earth would they bother eating the cheapest fish? Why on earth would they eat a goat's kneecaps? Give that to the slaves, man. Let them eat that junk. But, huh, the slaves had tricks up their sleeves, flavours that they carry with them all the way from West Africa, that they're mixing with these new flavours that they're finding in America or in the Caribbean. Mm. And they're mixing the things together and they're using these scraps. Okay, we got the shit fish, right? It's, it's like a bit of old hake or haddock. Fine. I know exactly how to preserve that from what we would have had to do without fridges mm. in the villages back in West Africa. Smother that in salt and then we put it in a dark place. I'll wrap it in some banana leaves or something like that. Now you've got a pile of salt fish. These bits of goat. Oh my God, they're throwing away. They're throwing away the kneecaps. So much flavor in there. Like, let's make the stock based around those bones and the marrow. Mm. Mm. How genius, often, just genius yeah, stuff. It, you're right. It's it's total ingenuity. And I think the gift for all of us is to is to check back in with that, to be able mm. to feel that as part of your own history and story yeah. and to, you know, reconnect with that home. How often do you get to? Do you do you cook? Do you cook curry I, goat for I, yourself? Does I, it do I, your do your I, sister or your brother, are they decent cooks? My brother's they? a good cook. Mm. He's good with fish. Zadie is not a cook, as she would tell you herself. She's been a takeout person for a long, long time. She's trying to do a little bit more here and there. Me, I can make two dishes without recipes very, very well. With a recipe, I can, I can pretty much do anything. But like, I'm talking just from memory. There's only two things I can cook. One's an, a great lamb red wine spag bowl. You know, I can, that ragu, I can make that like slow cooking three, four hours. But it's a spag bowl at the end of the day. It's not that exciting. But the other thing I can make almost to perfection, which is, you know, a recipe that's been handed down is ackee and saltfish mm. with fried dumpling planting on the side. Coconut rice and peas to go with it. That's my signature. And I can cook that any time of day under pressure for numbers of people, large numbers of people, and still make it good. The tradition in my house on carnival day was that well, like when I was little, was that you just have an open house and, oh, and, and then, you know, there's, there's, there's cooking going on. You take some fritters with you, saltfish fritters, take some dumpling with you, you know, uh, take some rum punch, stick it in a little plastic bottle and then walk down to carnival. And that's a tradition that I've kept going. So I have an open house on, on carnival day and whoever wants to come and, and have a big Jamaican breakfast is going to be the ackee and saltfish. My mum will do the fritters and do the dumplings and the coconut rice and peas and we'll mix up a massive vat of rum punch. And that's that's a that's a big tradition in my Amazing. life. But um, yeah, ackee and saltfish I cook throughout the mm. year. It's one of my favourite things to eat and to share with other people. And so often that there are people who've never tasted it. People are like, oh yeah, I know, I know what it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've never tried it, it. But yeah, I've never tried it. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah, I, we've, we've hardly talked about music, but it seems like you're returning in, in, you know, in terms of like, there was the comedy yeah. moment when maybe that was a little bit higher in the mix, but like yeah, there's absolutely. more music. I listened to uh, 4.0 <laughs> yeah. remix. I loved that. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. Like amazing. So this is a song. With Ramesh Ranganathan. And, yeah. yeah. Verb T and Ramesh Ranganathan. So it's, it's kind of like a halfway house, I suppose, mm. between my old comedy stuff and my actual rap stuff. It mm. sort of just sits there. It's, it's, it is funny, but it's not, straight up like comedy is yeah. it's real rap as well so um that is that is a world i love inhabiting just sitting mm. on that line well yeah i was it's not, not parody yeah you know i mean it's something else i was going to ask about that because obviously 
one of the joys of your comedy work was what a good rapper you are, how proficient you are. The, it doesn't the, work without that. The flow and the gift, like the gift that you have. But then I wonder, did you find that because you'd lent into the comedy that people will take it the wrong way, that you can't then pivot the other way? And Absolutely. There's a, there's a strange... It happens to me all the time. Right. So even when Verb T asked me to be on the track, I was like so excited. And then he was like, yeah, it's kind of a comedy thing. And I was like, oh... <laughs> But then when he got Romish on it as well, I was like, no, that's actually amazing. Mm, mm. But at first, I couldn't hide the disappointment. I'm mm. like, I would love to be asked to like yeah. rap rap. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And when I do, the response is almost always universally positive, yeah. but it's very difficult because it puts people in a difficult position. So 2017, I wrote and recorded a, an album of like yeah. serious yeah, rap yeah, and yeah. I toured it. Yeah. And... Outside of London and Bristol. This is Stemmer. Yeah. Right? yeah. I mean, London, Bristol, Manchester, I've always just had a following. Mm. For some reason, they just they just want me to rap. They're like, hey, we love the T-shirt. It's very funny, but we want some bars, bro. Yeah. You know, Bristol, Manchester, London, they has always they been legit it. like that. Everywhere else I went, it was like the same thing. Like, when are you going to do some jokes? People were shouting out for the comedy songs. Mm. You know what I mean? And mm. I thought, I didn't blame them. I was like... Yeah, to be honest, it's confusing. Yeah, like, it's yeah. the same name. It's Doc Brown. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's music well, happening. Yeah, like where's the T rap? Yeah, it does seem that you're clearly so talented and clearly able to be funny, but it's like there's weird rules about. You know, you're a fan of The Sopranos. I know that's one of the funniest yeah, shows ever, and show. yet it gets a pass in terms of being dramatic yes. and that heft. Is that something that you've that you've agonized about so yeah for me it's like i mean just this series that just came out the sixth commandment which is like you know it's a true crime there is zero laughs in this thing mm. it's when i have jobs like that i really really i don't want to hear about doc brown i don't want to hear about the t-rap i don't even want to think about the comedy that i've done in the past i have to sort of completely let go mm. of all self-consciousness mm. and what i might represent to people yeah and just totally get in the character and serve the story yeah to lose yourself and in line with what we're talking about here like all those vestiges of who you are of who ben is and what home is to you and identity mm. to have that fall away yeah and to let something else come to the fore is probably quite a yeah. quite a beautiful thing to be able to do that's why i don't do like panel shows because no disrespect to them whatsoever but i think if i was on all of them and I have mm. been offered all of them yeah and I just got offered I'm a celebrity for the third time. Wow. Which I say no to all of them because... Tempted? What was the most tempted you've been? I just say don't tell me the money because then I would be tempted. Right, <laughs> right, right. But no, yeah. I'm not tempted at all because I think what I'm trying to build is a sense of there is this stuff, there's this Doc Brown stuff and I, I hope you enjoy it. There's music and there's comedy. And then there is... Ben doing what he wanted to do when, when he was a little kid. You mm, know, when I was going to mm. the Tricycle Theatre in Kilburn High Road when I was six years old trying to act, mm, mm. you know, and I know I could make people laugh doing it, but I could also make them feel something mm. on, on a dramatic level. And the acting thing is not this kind of, oh, now he's doing acting. Mm. It's what I always wanted to do, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if I couldn't be a, a famous rapper, which I knew I was never going to be, mm. I dreamt about being a working actor. Mm. And for me, one way of retaining that is to retain at the same time alongside it some sense 
of Enigma. It's been so good chatting to yeah, you. I feel like we could just sit here and Yeah, easy. I could do another day. couple hours. But like, um, yeah. I always end by asking, almost flipping it the other way, like how somebody feels their culture has impacted kind of the UK specifically, the wider mm. world. We've we've covered that ground a little bit and I wondered specifically for you because you delivered a piece about sport and sportsmen for, yeah, the, for the Queen. For yeah, for the Queen, which is an incredible moment for mm. the uh, Platinum Jubilee. Yeah. And I wondered about the significance of sportsmen that kind of, you know, you have cultural crossover or yeah. share your heritage. And yeah, yeah. yeah is, is that something that, that comes to mind? And that Yeah, that sports are a big one for me because they create iconic moments mm. like there was things that John Barnes did with a football Cyril Regis who's also from around my way amazing um, stuff that they did that you would just watch over and over again like you would listen to a, a song or, or, or watch an incredible like memorable scene from a, a movie I don't think they thought of themselves as artists, but mm. I looked at them as as artists and part of the same sort of world of entertainers who do these things that you just never forget for me personally, nothing tops, you know, when you talk about handing on culture and 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 and, and creating your own your own ripples like Equiano did for me with hundreds of years between. For me, like the ripples that I've created, I think come from the four o'clock club, which is a children's show that I created. Because every day, I mean I get stopped in the street every day and it's fine, it's all love. But Every day, one young person, aged 20 to 22, so they would have grown up on the show, says to me, in some shape or form, they say, you made my childhood. That's what they say to me. Bro, you made my childhood. That's what I hear that once a day minimum from a complete stranger. And often it's, it's young black guys, young black girls. I had one stipulation with the BBC with that show is, was that even after I, I left it, I mean, I stayed on as a writer and whatnot, but I was like, the two central characters, they have to be black, I'm sorry. Mm. The rest of it is completely negotiable, mm. but I wanted a British Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I wanted a show that families would watch, that little kids would watch, that had black heroes, not necessarily being black in inverted commas with a capital B, yeah. but they just are black. Yeah. And they're doing shit yeah, and it's entertaining yeah, yeah. and it's in your living room. Because what this creates is tiny ripples. This show is, I mean, it was it was on for 10 years. It's unbelievable the success that it had and the, the homes that it went into and the, and the kids that have never forgotten about it of all colours, of all backgrounds. But the idea of it showing in Croydon in a bunch of black homes and it showing, you know, in a, a village in Humberside in a bunch of white homes and them all having the same reaction to it, it's just black people doing things yeah yeah having yeah, a good yeah. time looking after each other yeah. being funny yeah yeah you know it's this a, is a positive thing for a, an entirely white town or an entirely black it's a positive thing whichever way you slice yeah, it yeah you know and that's what i wanted to create and and that is what happened the impact you've had the connection you've made the the way in which you've you've helped people solidify their idea of home um ben Bailey Smith, Doc Brown, all of the people <laughs> that you are. Thank you so much for joining me. Cheers, Jimmy. Um, That's been a lot of fun. That was a total joy. And uh, yeah, can't wait to see more. Wicked. Thank you, bro. Thank you. I felt like we could have talked and talked for hours. It's so interesting and thoughtful about history, Black British identity, equality, multiculturalism, like 
to get an insight, you know, into what it was like to grow up with Zadie Smith as your genius sister and maybe <laughs> her changing her name from Sadie to Zadie might have been slightly annoying was just absolutely hilarious. And from then on, I just kind of held on tight and enjoyed the ride. It was a joy to meet him, to find out a little bit more about him. Yeah, really, really pleased with that. So that is all for this particular episode of Where's Home Really with me, Jimmy Famarewa. I am having a fantastic time recording this new series. I think you can probably tell. Um, and I hope you've had a great time listening to them. If there are any episodes you've missed, please do go back and check out the archive. And do join me next week for more stories about places and people who have their own unique interpretations of what home really means to them. And don't forget to give Where's Home Really a follow on your favourite podcast platform and also leave us a cheeky little review. Oh, and also check out our brand new website, whereshomereally.com, where you can find our whole catalogue of conversations plus some additional interesting tidbits. From Podomo and Listen, this has been Where's Home Really, hosted by me, Jimmy Famarewa. The producers are Tayo Popula and Aidan Judd. The executive producers for Podomo are Jake Chudnow and Matt White. And for Listen, it's Kelly Redmond. Until next time. <laughs>